You're listening to Different Things Can Be Sad. Welcome to Different Things Can Be Sad, where it's cool to care about politics and pop culture. I'm Yasmin Lomax. And I'm Micah Hunt. And we are your hosts of this politics and pop culture podcast. We come to you once a month, so it's only right that we kick things off by talking about how the past month has been. So, Micah, how has July 2022 served you? Um, it's been good. It feels like it just, like, flew by. We were just recording our June episode, and now here we are in July. Um, yeah, it's it's summer. It's It's nice to see sunshine. That's about it. You don't it. have your Vancouver, January, June, January? No. So was? it was very, very cold and rainy, and now we're in a heat wave. Um, oh, extremes. Is, yeah. Welcome to the world we live in now. Um, so that's mm-hmm. been fun. Nice. Yeah, mm-hmm. we've had similarly hot weather in New York as we were recording. We've just, I guess, come out of the heat wave. It's still super hot, but there was definitely a humid few days where I did not really go outside. I just hung out in my new apartment Ooh. that I moved to this month. Yep, that was the big the big news of July for me was moving into the new apartment and I love it. I am very, very happy to say that. So it's exciting to decorate a new place and discover a new neighborhood. So definitely a nice switch up for summer. Sounds lovely. It is. While it has been hot or rainy or however the weather has been, Micah, have you been doing any reading this month? I have. Um, I We had a lovely book coincidence where we both um, I had chosen a book to read with my book club, and you suggested it to me the very next day. And I have to say, I truly loved it. What is the book, Micah? Say it out loud. Uh, it's called Every Summer After by Carly Fortune, who is a debut Canadian author. Um, and it's Canadian romance, and it's wonderful. It is definitely. I when I sent Micah the frantic message telling her that she had to read it, I described it as the summer I turned pretty meets beach read, which I think is fair. Um, mm-hmm. It is a dual timeline story, so we follow Persephone, or we call her Percy, which I think Micah and I like yeah, a lot yeah, better. Much than better, Persephone. <laughs> Uh, during her teen years when she spends summers at a lake house a few hours outside of Toronto and grows closer to the boy next door, Sam. And then we have the other timeline, which is one weekend in present tense, where after more than a decade, they're reunited. And as Micah said, the Canadianness of it is great. Um, I really liked the highlight on cottage culture which seems to be a thing is that is that an ontario thing it's a or very ontario thing and part okay. of the book i think relies on you having some understanding of ontario geography which i have zero understanding of so i was i had to look at a map while reading this um mm-hmm. but it's not essential to understanding the book um but yeah it's a very like Can- uh, ontario is canada canadiana Okay. Okay. Well, I liked the um, the cottage side of things. Generally, the vibes were just great. Like, I think it really does transport you to summer when you're a teenager. Mm-hmm. You know those 
descriptions of the cool water and of ice cream running down your hands and all the awkwardness of figuring out friendships and family and first love. But it also feels quite literary, like an Emily Henry or even something like Paper Palace or Crawdads. It's not mm-hmm. one of the pastel cartoon people romances. There is definitely some depth and angst there that I think is is really great. And it's also a great read if you're like us and you still love YA and you want to have a book that's like 50% YA and 50% spicy adult romance. Yeah, I really like that. I In her um, author's note at the end, Carly Fortune talks about like all of the books that she read that helped her get through the pandemic. Um, and it's just so clear that she is like a lover of like quote unquote woman's fiction. And she mm-hmm. like knows the tropes, but knows how not to do them badly. Um, like what I really liked is that like a trope in all romance is like some amount of miscommunication. Um, and sometimes it's just, there for the sake of advancing plot but I really found that in this book it was there for the like because of the characters themselves and like their pasts and that's the reason why they were like miscommunicating with each other and not fully like saying how they felt so I really love that um her she has a at least in the Canadian edition she has this list of recommended books at the end and they are all like very good. There's some very popular reads, but there's also some deep cuts that are fantastic. So would recommend the book and her book recommendations. For sure. Definitely. Second, all that. Did you read anything else? Because that one kind of consumed me this month. I have nothing else to contribute. Um, I did read something else. I just wanted to talk briefly about this book that I've been wanting to read for so long and it was on my kind of you know when you go into a bookstore a used bookstore you have like one or two books that are on the top of your mind that you're like I need to find a copy of this this was one of those books for me and it took me like a year to find it um it's called a map to the door of no return by Diane Brand um and it's kind of hard to explain like what the book is so from the Goodreads summary um says, drawing on cartography, travels, narratives of childhood in the Caribbean, journeys across the Canadian landscape, African ancestry, histories, politics, philosophies, and literature, Diane Brand sketches the shifting borders of home and nation, the connection of place in Canada and the world beyond. Um, so yeah, it's like, it's a lot of everything. Um, it's about diaspora. So it's a, the door of no return is like this metaphor that she and she uses to talk about like the place from which um slaves were taken so this like place that you it's impossible to return back to because it doesn't actually exist but it's kind Mm -hmm. of a omnipresent theme um in people of the diaspora um it's really beautifully written um the reason why i wanted to read it so much is that it's kind of cited as this really foundational text in Canadian diaspora studies. Um, And I totally understand why, like it's so beautifully written and there's so many layers to it. And I'd love to read it again in a couple of years to kind of see what else I like can take from it. Um, I would highly recommend if you're interested in that kind of um, book, it's very different than kind of like a not, it's somewhere in between nonfiction and fiction, which makes it really interesting. Very interesting. I'm so glad you were able to get a copy of that after so long. That's so rewarding. 
Um, okay, moving on to watching. Once again, I have nothing to contribute. So you didn't watch a God, single movie in all of July? Oof. I watched Grease because uh, it's nice. summer and you got to watch Grease. That was very fun. Mm, I watched season three of Dream Home Makeover on Netflix. Very cool. That was fine. Um, I've started the new season of High School Musical, the musical, the series, which has just dropped its first episode as we recorded, but really nothing meaty to say about these. So I'm, I'm going to hand over to you. Fair enough. Um, I have seen movies this month, as always. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw Nope, which is the new Jordan Peele movie, which has Daniel Kaluuya, Kiki Palmer. It has horses. It has aliens. Um, it's great. Um, it's way less scary than previous Jordan Peele um movies which maybe is a disappointment to some but maybe a welcome change for others um one of like the main kind of like like the finale kind of moment takes place during the daytime which i think some people are very annoyed about because it's not spooky enough it's still plenty like tense and scary um but maybe that gives you the vibe of the movie um it's so funny which I think you can get from the title, like, nope, not doing that, um, as a reaction to horror. Um, but it never, like, destroys the story by, like, being too funny and, like, pointing at itself too much. Um, so I would recommend that. And it's, like, fun to see in theaters because it was shot on IMAX and is definitely, like, a big screen experience. Um I also watched Leave It to Heaven, which is just a shout out to um, my love of old Technicolor movies. Um, this is like a Technicolor noir, so it's from 1945, and it has kind of the themes and the vibes of a noir movie, which is usually in black and white, but is in Technicolor, so it's like the most beautiful thing you've seen on screen. Um it's about a beautiful socialite who gets very quickly married to this author, but then is incredibly jealous and doesn't want anything or anyone to come in between her and her new husband. And things get um, violent and dangerous and mysterious. Um, it's just great. It leaves oh, it leaves Criterion, the subscription service, uh, this month. So hopefully we get this up to you before August 1st. Um, and it's also, as a fun fact, one of Martin Scorsese's favorite movies, and you can see it, like, in the movie. Um, and it's just like a, it's a movie of vibes, um, and sometimes you just need that in a viewing experience, so would recommend that as well. On our notes sheet, I read it as, this is one of Martin Scorsese's first movies, and I was thinking, <laughs> how old is He's this Martin man? Like, I... I was like, I know he's old, but for him to have been old enough to be working by the Second World War, very confused for a second <laughs> there. I'm I'm glad to know it's one of his favorites. That mm-hmm. makes a lot more sense. Yeah. Okay. Listening. Do you have a listening for I us? I don't have a listen, and I would <sighs> I like need new music in my life. I, I am excited for July 29th, where many new albums are dropping. Um, and we will have listening to chat about. The Maggie Rogers and the Surprise Beyonce album are dropping this Friday. Oh, okay, we've got a lot for Friday. Um, but if you 
if people have any suggestions, they should, um, maybe we'll post a little story on Instagram and you can give us new music listening suggestions because I would love that. Ooh, I would love that too. I'd love to build more of a summer playlist at the moment. It has just been the summer I turned pretty soundtrack because that is just giving me summer vibes. But really this month, I absolutely devoured a podcast. It actually came out in May, so I'm a little bit late to the party. Mm -hmm. But it's called Unreal, A Critical History of Reality TV, and it's a BBC Radio 4 podcast. So this one is co-hosted by journalists Siren Kale and Pandora Sykes. Pandora, you might know if you were a high-low listener, and rest in peace. But this podcast tracks and analyzes reality TV, particularly UK reality TV. Yeah, so it starts with Big Brother in 2000 and goes all the way up to Love Island now with lots and lots in between. And I think the reason I loved this podcast so, so much is that the hosts clearly love reality TV, right? Mm -hmm. They're super fans of shows like The Kardashians and The Only Way is Essex. Like they have memories of seeing almost all of the reality TV moments they discuss on it. They are into it. But they're also trained journalists who have Mm -hmm. this like objective ability to recognize the genre's flaws and they want to analyze what it says about us as people and they want to point out where the genre can do better in the future and like what direction it should or they think it might go in. And, you know, I really like to think that's what we do here. You know, we Mm -hmm. take topics that are, um, you know, I guess particularly with the pop culture segment, seemingly trivial, but we think that they're worth examining because they tell us a lot about the state of the world and we can learn something from it. And yeah, so this was just like something that is definitely in my area of interest. And it was really good to listen to people discuss it with both passion and a critical eye. So highly recommend that if you've ever seen a show like- So good. Yeah. If you've ever seen an episode of Selling Sunset, Made in Chelsea, um, obviously Love Island, definitely must listen to. Welcome to politics. Uh, This month, at the very tail end of the month, the Pope came to Canada. The Pope was, I guess, returning a visit from um, different First Nations leaders from Canada who had gone to the Vatican earlier this year. Um, He came to meet with First Nations groups to discuss residential schools, and um, he ended up offering an apology to the First Nations peoples, people um, who were affected by the residential school system. Um, We've talked a bit about the residential school system before on this podcast, but as a reminder, residential schools um, were boarding schools where First Nations children were forcefully separated from their families and denied access to their language and culture. Um, Children in these schools often faced violence at the hands of administrators, and many, many of these administrators were members of the Catholic Church, either nuns or priests, um, as the Catholic Church actually ran a lot of these schools. Um, The National Truth and Reconciliation Report, which was a report done to um, uncover um, the harms that had been done to um, First Nations people in Canada, Indigenous people in Canada, um, that report found and concluded that 
residential schools were an essential part of the cultural genocide that occurred in this country. Um, And the last few years, like we talked about last year on the podcast, um, more and more evidence has um, been found that many hundreds of children died in these institutions. So this is a truly awful history, and the Catholic Church has played a big part in it. Um, The Pope was in Treaty 6 territory, otherwise known as Edmonton, and he said, I ask forgiveness um, in particular for the ways in which many members of the church and the religious communities cooperated, not least through their indifference in projects of cultural destruction and forced assimilation promoted by the governments of that time, which accumulated in the system of residential schools. He said, in the name of Jesus, may this never happen again in the church. I do not love that apology, Micah. I am just going to jump in and say, you know, I have read a lot of bad celebrity apologies um, over the past year. They have been flat out apologizing and this one would not fly. Yeah, this apology um, does not kind of meet the criteria for a good apology in a couple ways. Um, We'll talk about some of them, but like just to point out to you, um, one that stands out to me a lot is this idea that um, the government is kind of the... soul or maybe like the biggest force behind these rules and yes the government has a huge role to play in residential schools but it kind of this apology kind of fronts the government as the sole Mm -hmm. conspirator in this um and the other thing that and and this will become kind of clear how this is a false um reading of history as we talk about um this more today um the other kind of thing that you point out in that statement is that the pope talks about members of the church and the religious Mm -hmm. communities, but he doesn't talk about the Catholic church as an institution. Mm -hmm. Um, And this kind of like these two points are some of the biggest criticisms that people have had over this apology. Um, Generally, the issues that people and specifically indigenous leaders have had with this apology is that it doesn't put full onus of the Catholic church role in residential schools or in colonialism in general. And one thing that keeps on coming up again and again is that the Pope, um, to truly forward reconciliation and apologize, should have some concrete action, and that action should be a renunciation of the doctrine of discovery. And the this phrase, this thing, the doctrine of discovery, keeps on coming up again and again in these discussions. And it's like a little complicated, but kind of foundation, not kind of, is foundational to colonialism in Canada and around the world. So I thought we'd take some time to talk about the Doctrine of Discovery today and kind of contextualize the Pope's visit. Um, sound good? Very, well, I was going to say very good. It doesn't sound good. Okay. I'm sure you're about yeah. to tell me something awful that the church has been doing, but I am ready to learn about it is what I mean. Yes. Um, so what is the Doctrine of Discovery? Um, you may have heard of this thing called colonialism in the late 15th century, um, as Europeans were sailing around the world and and not discovering lands, but encountering lands that they hadn't really they hadn't previously been aware of, they were looking for um, justification, reasoning for who gets to take control and like own these new in quotes lands. Um, and given the kind of the power of the Catholic Church at the time and its its ability to, um, I mean, it like the church gave power to the kings and queens of the day. 
in many um, countries and kind of ruled, um, made decrees about what was how the world would go. Um, they went, the different explorers and the um, specifically the Spanish and Portuguese um, monarchy went to the um, Catholic church and asked, what are we going to do about these new lands? And they came back with um, many different papal bulls, which are like proclamations, essentially. So the Doctrine of Discovery is actually not one singular document, but a collection of documents that then is the kind of underlying philosophy on how um, colonialism was justified. So there's kind of two that everyone points to as being the most important. So there's the Roma, Romans Pontifex, which was issued by Pope Nicholas V in 1455. And then there's the Intera um, Cetera, which was issued by Pope Alexander VI in 1493. Um, the Pope Alexander one is specifically about Spain and, um, and Christopher Columbus. Um, if you remember the rhyme, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492. He came back, asked the Pope for um, uh, permission, essentially, to colonize the land. And he, like, drew on the map what was going to be Spain's. Um, so these documents outlined how colonialism would happen, um, or, like, the justifications for it, as I think the best way to say it. And the underlying justification is this idea that lands that where no Christians lived could be discovered by any Christian and then claimed for their sovereign. Um, hmm. So by claiming and exploiting these empty lands, empty because you no know, Christians live there, Europeans could go forth and spread Christianity and the Catholic faith, faith across the world. Um, and I think it's important, like, there's violence in the idea that, like, people who aren't Christian aren't people, but there's actual violence in, like, what the Catholic Church said should be done to these people. Um, and these people are the millions of indigenous um, nation peoples who lived in North and South America. So Steve Newcomb is a uh, indigenous historian from Portland, Oregon, who is a expert in the Doctrine of Discovery. And he, um, in an interview with the CBC this week, said that he prefers to call it the Doctrine of Domination um, instead of Discovery. And he says it's because in the Vatican Papal Bull of May 3rd, 1943, for example, it says that the explorers that are going out through the world are to locate those places that are not yet yet under the domination of any Christian dominators. That's the key. So it's that the world should be ruled by Christians. And part of that is like the um, Romans pontific Pontifex says specifically that those who aren't Christians should be enslaved by Christians and exploited by them. So there's like specific language, not that just this land is empty, but that says what Christians should do to those who aren't Christian. Um, and you might think to yourself, this was like 500 years ago. Why do we care about the doctrine of discovery? Like that's obviously we don't like do what the Catholic church says anymore um, in certain countries. Um, but what's important is that like 
the doctrine of discovery is how the Europeans approached the land. And then when they created countries, it was the underlying justification for how they um, created the land and who got to have the land. So, for example, when Canada was founded, all of the land was deemed empty um, under this terminology of terra nullius um, and was given to the crown. It was empty because oh, it was, that was in Australia. That was yeah. the the same phrasing there. Yeah, um, I think they, yeah, they use the same kind of philosophy behind it. It was the British, um, and it was empty in that it was devoid of Christians. Mm-hmm. So the foundation of the country and like so much of Canada's crown land is based on this idea that the indigenous people are not people because they um, are not Christian. Um, Steve Newcomb. Um, says that, like, contextualizes this when he says, um, we also have to look into the British crown and the fact that the crown has made this assertion of crown sovereignty on the basis of ceremonial acts and rituals, whereby they would simply pick up some soil and magically voila, as if, you know, by holding the soil in their hand and doing this ritual and maybe singing a song or what you have you, that suddenly everything belongs to the crown. That's part of the same pattern that emerges out of the Vatican papal bulls, and it's still being asserted against all of our nations and peoples to this day. Um, So maybe, like, obviously the English were not Catholic, and so weren't, like, operating under Catholic papal bulls, but they were using the same underlying philosophies um, to kind of say that the land was theirs. And we see the Doctrine of Discovery come up again and again in court cases. Um, the most like kind of foundational pivotal of these is the um, American Johnson versus McIntosh. Um, I can't remember which one is which, but basically the case said that Native Americans can't sell property to private citizens in the U.S. because under the Doctrine of Discovery, um, they never owned the land in the first place. Um, so they can sell to the government but they can't sell to private citizens because it's not really Hmm. there. Convenient. Very convenient. Um, They talk about this a bit in This Land, which is a podcast that I've talked about before on this podcast and is great. But Johnson v. McIntosh then gets used. um, A fun fact about American jurisprudence is that American decisions get used outside of America. Um, so they use Johnson versus McIntosh in Canada to like make similar claims in different cases. Uh, which is kind of an insight into why like people say, for example, um, Roe v. Wade ending in the U.S. is bad for everyone because we use kind of this, the argumentation outside of the U.S. as well. That makes sense. Everything parallels and comes back um so the doctrine of discovery not great embedded in north american law and title to land um it's the basis for colonialism in the new world and so therefore the legal basis for the genocide of indigenous peoples um if so people want the catholic church to rescind it because of how foundational it is and I think two things would happen um, by if the Catholic Church were to rescind the doctrine of discovery. Um, one, it would show that they are responsible for some of these acts because they'd have to say, well, why are we rescinding it? We're rescinding it because it was a bad thing. And then it also removes the legitimacy of colonial governments 
um, because it takes away that basic title they had to the land and says they didn't have it. Whereas they had it on fraudulent terms, essentially. Mm-hmm. So people have been trying to get rid of the Doctrine of Discovery for a while. In the 1990s, there was a push from outside, but also within the church, to get John Paul II to revoke the doctrine. Um, in 2003, UNRIP, which is the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, recognize um, that the doctrine of discovery and similar doctrines were not legally valid. And then in 2018, the Assembly of First Nations in Canada um, produced a document um, called Dismantling of the Doctrine of Discovery, which is a really well-researched and um, well-argued document against the Doctrine of Discovery um, and its impacts on First Nations in Canada to this day. And we'll link it for sure in the description. So here we are, people have been kind of against the doctrine, not kind of vehemently against the doctrine of discovery for quite some time. And the Pope comes to Canada to apologize. Um, but as we saw in his apology, it was kind of half, half-assed essentially. And it didn't really meet what a criteria for being a real apology. Um, while the Pope was speaking on Treaty 6 territory, um, Chief Judy Wilson of um, the Nesconleth, uh Indian Band called from the crowd to asking the Pope or demanding the Pope to renounce the Doctrine of Discovery. In an interview afterwards, she said that um, the accountability is so huge in this. So repudiation of the Doctrine of Discovery is the accountability of what happened to our people. Um, it puts onus specifically on the Catholic Church. Um, former Senator Murray Sinclair stated, driven by the doctrine of discovery and other church beliefs and doctrines, Catholic leaders not only enabled the government of Canada, but pushed it even further in its commitment to cultural genocide of indigenous peoples. In many instances, it was not just a collaboration, but an instigation. So that fully reverses the causality that the Pope is asserting in his apology and saying that, no, the Catholic Church is like an important player in this as an institution. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's kind of the underlying reason why people are asking the Pope, demanding of the Pope to renounce the document of discovery and saying that like, this isn't enough. And it's been really interesting to see the term doctrine of discovery kind of front and center in the reporting by Canadian media. Um, and it shows that like they're not just taking the Pope's apology and the people who were theirs, um, like they weren't just taking that at face value. They were asking like a wide variety of indigenous peoples how they felt about that apology. Um, the Pope, some concluding thoughts. The Pope is going to be in Canada until Friday, June 29th. He is traveling around Canada um, and he's currently in Quebec, but it seems kind of unlikely that he will renounce the doctrine of discovery while he's here. He's been very, very careful with his language and none of it really indicates that um, he will be saying anything more than he already has. Um, To leave you with kind of something else to look into and something that I'm definitely going to try and watch, there's this new doctor documentary out called The Doctrine of Recovery, which is made by um, Indigenous filmmakers. Um, And it discusses the impact of the Doctrine of Discovery, and it does so through 
interviewing and following three prominent Indigenous women of different generations and telling their stories. And part of it, this recovery part, is it connects the doctrine of discovery to climate change and is about empowering Indigenous peoples um, to fight climate change and um, the doctrine of discovery itself. So I think that should be a really interesting watch. They kind of, they timed it with the Pope's visit. So it's coming out this month um, and we will link kind of ways to watch it in the description because I think it would be quite insightful. So onto the pop culture portion of the show. This has been a very fruitful month for pop culture enthusiasts mm-hmm. like me. We have had Leah Michelle being appointed to the role of Fanny Bryce in Funny Girl after Beanie Feldstein left. We have had Jen Shaw from The Real Housewives of Salt Lake City pleading guilty to charges of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. And we have had the Benefer wedding. Mm-hmm. That's right. After rekindling their romance nearly 20 years after they were first engaged, Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez were married in Las Vegas, Nevada this month with JLo, who is now controversially called Jennifer Affleck, sharing the news and photos on her blog on the JLo, which I might add is one of the jankiest looking websites I have ever <laughs> been on. It looks like it is under construction and maybe like a subway uh, like times map. Like it's bizarre she needs, uh, to get a wix.com uh or squarespace subscription squarespace if either of those would like to sponsor us this is where the plug would go <laughs> but however i'm not here to discuss jlo's janky website i i'm not even here to discuss the timeline of benefer because you can probably find many other podcasts and youtube series and news articles that chronicle their whole relationship What I want to discuss this month is the phenomenon of Vegas weddings in pop culture. Mm -hmm. So to get started, what do we mean by a Vegas wedding? When I say that phrase, you probably have ideas in your mind. There's probably like a neon chapel. There's an Elvis impersonator. But I think like the most key thing to a Vegas wedding is the fact that it is kind of considered a quickie. So you can get married very quickly. Not only is the decision not always, but like in many cases, a snap one, but Mm -hmm. the process from deciding to get married to getting your license to having the ceremony to the ceremony being over is very, very short. So the actual ceremony might only be 10 to 15 minutes. They have like expedited processes where they can do like multiple uh, couples in an hour, let's say, in a single (laughs) chapel. But I think like a lot of people think that it's a quickie because Nevada doesn't have blood test or waiting period requirements. Like when you apply for a marriage license, you get it straight away. Blood test is actually one. I'm not sure there's a state that currently asks for it, but it is a thing to make sure that people aren't intoxicated. Okay. Which would probably be a good idea in a lot I of cases. Like related, not intoxicated. Ooh, that's a juicy one. There's probably different states where they could do that. Who knows? 
Um, the waiting period requirements kind of the big one there because yeah, there's not a, uh, there's no lag between you applying for a license and you getting it and then being able to be legally married. Turns out like a lot of States don't have this waiting period. So it's really more that Vegas itself has created the perfect environment for a speedy wedding. So those are things I talked about before that they're, mm. they're set up for it. Um, they've also put a lot of historical effort into it. Like Vegas has established itself as the wedding capital of the world for many, many years. In 1931, they passed bills legalizing gambling and shortening the time in which couples could get divorced. And then within 10 years, they had, um, in 1941, they had issued 21,000 marriage licenses that year, which was up from 5.3,000 licenses issued just two years before. Damn. Yes. So there's the accessibility I alluded to before. We have a little white wedding chapel, which is the most notable chapel in Las Vegas. That one has hosted the weddings of stars like Benefer, but it costs only $75 to get married there. And they even offer a drive-through service. So, damn. And you know, Vegas is also Sin City. There's this idea of what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. It's home to a lot of adult activities like gambling and drinking. So essentially, when all these things combine, you can spend like 24 hours in a windowless casino where the concept of time is non-existent, and you're losing your mind, getting super drunk and gambling. And then you can stumble literally across the street to a chapel and get married in 15 minutes for as much money as in your pocket. So ideal environment for a quickie wedding. So that's why it's a perfect breeding ground for marriages for us regular folk. What's with all the celebrities and the Vegas weddings? I'm sure we have like an iconic idea in our minds of the late 90s, early 2000s celebrity weddings, which I will get to in a moment. But this trend actually began much, much earlier on. So Paul Newman, who is an actor, philanthropist, and ranch dressing enthusiast, Mm -hmm. and his wife, Joanne Woodward, who is also an actor and philanthropist, not clear on her ranch dressing stance, they got married in Vegas in 1958. So pretty early on. Yeah. We had Judy Garland married to her fourth husband, Mark Herron, in Vegas in 1965. And even Frank Sinatra and Mia Farrow were married in Vegas in 1966, which, fun fact, was when he was 50 and she was 21. Cute. Yes. Mm-hmm. Lots and lots of other celebrity weddings there. Since then, we've had people like Bruce Willis and Demi Moore, Michael Jordan and Juanita Vinoy. We've had Cindy Crawford and Richard Gere. A lot, a lot of people. But as I mentioned before, that late 90s, early to mid 2000s is the most iconic era and kind Mm -hmm. of the one we think of when people say Vegas weddings, particularly celebrity ones. So, you know, some examples of this is in Friends, Ross and Rachel get drunk Mm -hmm. and married in Vegas in the season five finale, and that aired in 1999. We have Britney Spears and Jason Alexander, her childhood friend, getting married there in 2004. Also, notably, annulled 55 hours later. Funnily (laughs) enough, there's a 2015 article in The Cut that uh, speaks to Britney's 2004 Vegas wedding. Like, while they're introducing the concept of Vegas weddings, they reference her 2004 Mm. Vegas wedding as if, yeah, like, as if 
weddings specifically belong to that era, like flip phones or MSN or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, Another iconic one of that era was Pamela Anderson and Ricky Solomon. He is an American poker player whose Wikipedia page describes him as best known for his 2004 sex tape with Paris Hilton. Yep. Uh, They got married in Vegas in 2007. And this kind of era really contributed to the perception of Vegas weddings as trashy. Even singer Carmen Electra, who wed NBA star Dennis Rodman there in 1998, said, It's easy to get caught up in a moment. You think it's romantic, but then you realize, God, we did it in Vegas. It's like getting a cheeseburger at a fast food restaurant. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And the general public seemed to agree because after 2004, things kind of went downhill for Vegas weddings. Uh, In that year, the Clark County, which Vegas is the county seat of, issued 128,000 marriage licenses. And since then, the number of marriage licenses has steadily decreased to around 70,000 on an average year. Yeah. And then um, we had in 2015, the LA Times reporting that the number of couples who got married in Vegas hotels and walk-in chapels had dropped 37% in the past decade, which was a loss of a billion dollars annually to the city of Las Vegas. As I mentioned before, they have put decades into making weddings a big revenue driver for them. So this is not good. But, you know, as a society, we seem to have moved on from Vegas weddings. Rest in peace. Or not, because now (laughs) there has been a new boom. So in 2019, we had Joe Jonas and Sophie Turner getting married there. That was actually after the Billboard Music Awards. It seems like they just decided on a whim at the awards that they were just going to unsawn over to a chapel and get married. They actually had a second wedding in Paris um, that year as well. We also had David Harbour and Lily Allen getting married there in September 2020. That one was very cute and iconic. It was Mm -hmm. a small wedding attended by her daughters, and he posted on Instagram. In a wedding officiated by the king himself, the people's princess wed her devoted, low-born, but kind credit card holder in a beautiful ceremony lit by the ashen skies courtesy of a burning state miles away in the midst of a global pandemic. Refreshments were served at a small reception following. So if you forgot about September 2020, California on fire, global COVID-19 pandemic, and they did have their reception food at an in and out So cute. That was a moment. And then, of course, as we discussed on a previous episode of this here podcast, Kravis, uh, Kourtney Kardashian and Travis Barker, had a unofficial practice wedding without a marriage license in Vegas back in <laughs> April mm-hmm. before they had an official wedding in California in May and a religious ceremony hosted by Dolce & Gabbana in Italy that month. If you want all the goss on that, we will link in the show notes. And then, of course, this month we have Benefer doing it. Crazy. So what is with this renewed interest in Vegas weddings? And why do we think it's cool that these celebrities are doing it now and we didn't think before? Mm-hmm. I think like the most generous reason I can come up with um, for celebrities doing it, I mean, not that they have to, but also like for us 
viewing it kindly is these changing values of money. I think we're a little bit past everyone uh, being obsessed with those like multi-million dollar celebrity weddings, like the glitz and glam of Kim Kardashian and Chris Humphreys or Kim Kardashian and Kanye West's very public, very extravagant weddings in the early 2010s. As a society, we're not vibing that thing anymore. We are in tough economic times, you know, in the US, the average cost of a traditional wedding is $23,000. Now, to break that down, the average house price in the US is $375,000, which honestly sounds like a dream as someone living in New York City. Yeah, we've got some big uh, outliers there that can skew things. But the average, let's say, is uh, $375,000. And the average down payment is 6% which means that the average money people are putting up front for a house is $22,500, which is the average cost of a wedding. Marriage or mortgage. I was just going to bring up our favorite, <laughs> least favorite show on Netflix. Definitely the it's most I've never seen. One. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I tried to get through that. If you don't know, this was a Netflix kind of reality show where a couple – had saved up, let's say $30,000. I believe that was like the round number they were all using. And they could either spend the money on a wedding or on a mortgage. And not enough of them chose mortgage. Like I don't want to judge people's decisions, but considering the pandemic were at its head pretty soon after this was filmed, a lot of them were left in like less than ideal living situations and Mm -hmm. with weddings that didn't happen. And they lost a lot of money on. So it was, uh, yeah, a lot. So basically, yeah, the cost of a wedding and the cost of a house are getting pretty similar in the US. And I think there's this like rising movement of not spending your life savings or going into debt over a single day. And maybe like reflecting that in celebrity land, if they are as in tune with the general public as uh, I am generously assuming, Mm -hmm. people don't want to see those extravagant displays of wealth anymore. This is kind of cool. Another reason I think that these are getting pretty popular amongst the celebs is the Y2K nostalgia. We have Mm -hmm. discussed this many times on the podcast before, but basically everyone is obsessed with the early 2000s and that kind of like blinged out Y2K aesthetic is back. And I think Vegas with all its like neon and its casinos and its glitter and its glam really works with that and then also obviously we have those like iconic moments from that decade like we have britney's wedding we have pamela anderson's wedding and we kind of love to see celebrities sharing that similar love and honoring some of the decade's most iconic moments i think another reason why this has become acceptable now is that In a sense, like we're viewing the celebrities who are doing it now as like more respectable ones. But I almost like to think that is because we were maybe too harsh before. You know, there's a Mm -hmm. lot of discussion now about how society and the media specifically treated women in that era, particularly Britney Spears and Pamela Anderson. You know, we have documentaries like Framing Britney Spears. We have shows like Pam and Tommy that see us re-examining how they were essentially 
mocked and abused by us all when people were going through things and we just didn't see it. It was like layered in misogyny. So I kind of like to think that now we are being a little kinder on celebrities and we're not assigning like as much, I would hope, which ones are like worthy and which ones are not. And I'm just hoping that we're, yeah, rethinking the judgment that we cast on these weddings back on the day that maybe didn't deserve it. Mm -hmm. That's a hope anyway. Um, I think though, one thing that is definitely worth mentioning, and it kind of ties into that is these weddings being a case of classy if you're rich, but trashy if you're poor, or, you know, even if we're kind of deviating between celebrities, it's like, classy if you're a celebrity couple we like but trashy if you're a woman in the early 2000s who's going through it you know Mm -hmm. and this question was raised in a reddit thread in 2019 they asked what are some things that are classy if you're rich but trashy if you're poor and there was a whole host of answers that came in so people saying things like living in a hotel having a boatload of pets day drinking Um, You know, even having like multiple marriages is a lot more acceptable if you're a celebrity or rich. And yeah, I think this is evident here. We're happy for celebrities to embrace trashiness, but we're not happy for regular people to do it. You know, this idea of like trashiness or tackiness has socioeconomic implications. So if you don't have a lot of money, it's like you are doing this because you have poor taste or that you have... And you don't have enough money to afford a quote unquote better option. But Mm -hmm. if you're like a rich person like Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck, it's like you're being a little ironic. You're being a little tongue in cheek. You're having a little fun being like trashy or even modest today. But like we all know that you could afford a lavish European ceremony next month and you probably will go do that. Like it's just a little bit of fun. It's not, you know, anything to judge. And I think this bias can also see us assign moral value to that decision. Like Mm -hmm. when it's a celebrity, we're kind of like, oh, you have the money, but it's like very humble. And I really appreciate that you're not splashing out. You know, it shows that you're not just doing it for the People magazine shoot and the paycheck that comes with it. You actually care about love more than money for you it wasn't about this big display of extravagance you just love them so much you had to go get married that day and that was that but like if it's a random person we might be thinking that quick equals careless that the ceremony wasn't special that you can't put a price on love but like maybe 75 dollars is too little and that even like you're selfish for eloping your family weren't there you just went and did it by yourself Mm -hmm. so yeah, for something that seems as like silly and trivial as like a Vegas wedding, I think there's a lot of stuff baked into it that we as a society have to unpack. And one of those things is the wedding industrial complex. Now, obviously, yeah. I think this could be like a whole podcast on its own and you should there's like some really great essays, really great books about this. But essentially, the wedding industrial complex, we have this million business sector that includes like dressmakers, all the venues, wedding planners, photographers, florists, catering, like videographers, anything you can imagine to do with a wedding. And I mean, that's just the tip of the iceberg, but people have basically been told that it's necessary for them to have all these Mm -hmm. things for a dream wedding. And it's this emphasis of like 
wedding over marriage. Like the wedding is what people are talking about, not the fact that you're going to be married to someone for the rest of your life. It's about having this day that costs a boatload of money, but it proves that like you care about this relationship. And, you know, those kind of messages are very manipulative and very insidious. So other examples is like how prevalent the wedding industry is on social media. And then because it's on social media, things get muddled or like flattened. Like you could be scrolling on your feed and you see Kourtney Kardashian's lavish Italian wedding appearing right after a picture of just like your friends at a picnic and seeing those like side by side is like normalizing both of them, Mm -hmm. you know, and you're not taking into account that Courtney didn't pay for her wedding. Dolce and Gabbana paid for it. Mm-hmm. But you're thinking, okay, that's the standard. That's what a wedding looks like. Or maybe you've got these like influencers you follow or even people like you don't know, but you have established these kind of like parasocial relationships with them and they start to feel like friends. And then you see their weddings and yeah, they have all these brand contacts or they have like so much money because influencing pays so well. And then you're comparing your plans against theirs, not kind of realizing there's this huge wealth gap because they do such a good job of like being your pal online. This is one thing I think about all, like I think about this too much because I'm a 20 something woman on Instagram Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. apparently wedding content is all I want. Um, (laughs) And one thing I think is really interesting is like how wedding photographers have become such an important part of this. Like the Mm. way to get yourself employed as a wedding photographer is to have really robust social media. And that often comes in the form of like tips and tricks for wedding days. Like I'm a wedding photographer. I've been to a lot of weddings, but then that like becomes a, like a, not a self-fulfilling prophecy, but they like come to dictate what a real wedding is and like what a good wedding is because they're like espousing these rules. Mm -hmm. And it's just fascinating, but it's also kind of horrifying because like this is, it's so much money. And like at the end of the day, it's just like, it's a party and like a legal document between you, your spouse and the government. Um, Exactly. Like we shouldn't be guilting people into it. Yeah. And especially those things like the wedding photographers sharing their tips, right? What if you follow like five of those and they're each sharing like three tips one day? That means you've been given like 15 tips, which is like 15 extra things you have to add to your wedding. And I think like, mm-hmm. it's just this, for. yeah, it's like you're, you're getting exposed on like so many different levels that you kind of like think that you have to do all of those things. Like you're almost getting too many ideas. You're getting mm-hmm. pressure on yeah, so many different levels on social because people are kind of setting a new standard that is serving to them, you know? Like it serves these influencers and celebrities to have lavish weddings because like it builds their profile. It serves like people like photographers to share tips because it helps them get hired. And at the end of the day, like the kind of pawns in this are the actual people getting married, you know? There's Mm -hmm. even like, this kind of false reliance on tradition to push expense, you know, that really kind of ties in even with like family pressures and stuff. But like to give one example, white wedding dresses only became popular in the mid 19th century. Like that's not even that old a practice. We're treating it as if this is some like ancient right. And like, you have to wear this white dress. And 
they're obviously going to be like the crazy expensive ones as well. Mm -hmm. But it's like, it's not that old. Like none of these wedding traditions are like centuries old, especially with people having like secular weddings more than ever. It is just so strange to me that we've still got these like traditions that people feel that they have to abide by. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of just... what I think the Vegas wedding has its appeal. It's like kind of reactionary to it. Yeah, yeah. Like it is a little kind of like countercultural because I am just really into anything that empowers people to make the choices that are right for their relationship or even like their financial situation. Mm-hmm. And if you're kind of like, okay, the thing that I need for a wedding is just the two of us and I want us to like, go on a fun vacation to Vegas, then great. That actually sounds awesome. You know, you probably got that extra $22,000 now for the house, or you've got to spend <laughs> on anything else you want, or you haven't gone into debt because of it. So it really is whatever is right for you. And even like, if you want to do the traditional big white dress, all that, absolutely you should. But I do think that's a thing that like requires some little like self-reflection. Are you just doing those things because you think you have to, because I am here to tell you that they're all bullshit. Like Mm -hmm. they are literally like modern inventions that are like designed to scam you out of money. But anyway, (laughs) (laughs) Um, just to tie it again back to Vegas weddings. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where if you're applauding a celebrity like Ben Affleck and Jennifer Lopez for getting Vegas married, if you're thinking that's so like humble and sweet of them, awesome. You should be nice and kind to people. But maybe if you're also judging someone who's viewed as like a less elevated celebrity or if it's someone that you know in real life who is getting Vegas married and or getting married like in a courthouse or something like that. If you find yourself judging them, like maybe rethink that because I think there's a lot of like classism and elitism um, mm-hmm. baked into that, you know? And that's just my two cents on this very money-focused and very impassioned wedding spiel. Alrighty, that's it for another episode of Different Things Can Be Sad. Michael, what will you be up to until we hear from you next month? Um, I will be going to a lake. Um, Ooh, what lake? Just Okanagan Lake. The usual um, lake. The usual lake. Um, and uh, surviving the heat wave. Um, hopefully reading some good stuff. Um, watching an excessive amount of movies. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it should be good. That actually sounds very similar to my month. I am also going to a lake like Tahoe. I am also hoping to continue riding out all the heat in New York and definitely do some more reading. I am almost at the end of the Throne of Glass series and ready to <laughs> my full review on all eight books. I am sorry, I'm not reading the prequels. I can't, I can't do that, but I've gave it a good shot. So I am excited to uh, read some other stuff while on vacation. If you would like to follow any of our journeys, you can find information on our episodes on our po- on our Instagram at DTCBS podcast. You can find me on Instagram as at Yasmin Lomax. How about you, Micah? Um, at Micah, huh? And that's where she is. And we will be in your ears next mm-hmm. month.
Bye. Bye.